This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. One might not know it to look now, but it was Orthodox Christians who built some of the greatest educational institutions in the world. The universities in Paris and Oxford were founded in the Middle Ages by Christians who believed the historic Christian faith. Later, the universities of Leiden and Cambridge and then Harvard and Yale in the American colonies were founded by believing Christians. In the 18th and 19th centuries, however, something of a religious and educational revolution swept across the West when various Enlightenment movements across Europe and the British Isles and later in the American colonies routed Christian orthodoxy. Since that time, orthodox confessional Christian scholars and scholarship have been increasingly marginalized from the mainstream of academic life where they were once found in abundance in the great universities of Europe and the British Isles and in the United States. Today, faithful, confessional, evangelical scholars are more likely to be found in smaller and newer institutions, as the great universities succumbed to the competing theologies and philosophies offered by the Enlightenment, a series of alternative colleges and universities sprang up in the 19th and 20th centuries in America. For perhaps a century, we saw those schools flourish and even expand as the contrast between Christian orthodoxy and various anti-Christian ideologies became clearer. As we speak, however, evangelical academia is facing even newer challenges. Recently, after the Supreme Court's Obergefell decision legalizing same-sex marriage, a small number of evangelical colleges announced that they were withdrawing from the Christian College Coalition. Another college is facing potential challenges to its accreditation after its president spoke up asking for the liberty to adhere to historic Christian ethics. Stephen J. Nichols is president of Reformation Bible College in Sanford, Florida, just north of Orlando, and he's charged with supervising the education of Christian young people in our late modern age. Dr. Nichols has written many books, including volumes on Jonathan Edwards, Martin Luther, and J. Gresham Machen. He and his wife have three children, and he's on campus this week to speak to our students. Hi, Stephen, and welcome to Office Hours. My pleasure. Thanks for having me here. We are very excited to have you on campus. And I know in the introduction, I did not do justice to all of the many things in which you're involved. You're not only the president of Reformation Bible College, correct, just north of Orlando, but you're also a teaching fellow at Ligonier. Correct. And what else are you? I also have a role at Ligonier as chief academic officer, and I think that's probably enough. Okay. And I did not list all of your books, so the listener will definitely want to check you out on Amazon. Look at Stephen J. Nichols on Amazon.com and see all the many titles that he has published. Let's get to know you a little bit personally before we dive into Christian education and history and all of that. How on earth did you become a Christian college professor? How does one end up there? You know, my dad's a pastor, and to me, growing up, either a missionary or a pastor was all I sort of understood of full-time Christian work. So you either were a pastor or a missionary or you went into business. And I remember going off to college, not sure that I wanted to go into pastoral ministry. And freshman class, I took Greek, and my professor picked up Machen's grammar. <laughs> he picks up Machen's grammar, kisses it, puts it on the podium, and proceeded to give this brilliant introductory lecture to Greek. And it was a night class, and I walked back to my dorm, 
And on the walk back to my dorm, I thought, I want to do that. I just enjoy the academic environment. I enjoy engaging with ideas. I enjoy engaging with students. And I began just talking to my professors. How did you get to be where you are and what advice would you have for me? And I just took as much advice as I could get. And God was gracious to me. As you know, teaching jobs are few and far between. And God was gracious to me to give me a job in higher education. And I've been in it now for, this is my 19th year in Christian higher education. Uh, That's an important lesson in how people discover their vocation. Sometimes people think that it's utterly mystical, but it isn't. You saw something and heard something that sparked your imagination and that resonated within you, and you realized that you had an inclination and interest and ability toward that sort of work. I think it's true. And, you know, along the way, there's confirmation. We speak of this even in terms of the pastoral call. And whatever your vocational interests are, there is that external confirmation that you do have the gifts and doors open. So that's how it happened for me. You're listening to Office Hours, and we're talking with Stephen J. Nichols, president of Reformation Bible College, and we're talking about Christian education and what it means to be a Christian in the academy. Now, Stephen, when you started on this path toward becoming a Christian prof, did you have any idea that Christian education would be where it is now and that we would be facing the kinds of challenges that we're facing now? No, I didn't. And I think some of that is because we probably would not have predicted the rapid decline of American culture in general. We really are moving towards, I see this more and more, we're moving more towards a first century that we see in the pages of the New Testament. And not only that, we're even moving towards sort of a fourth or fifth century with the decline of Rome, as it were. We are seeing a cultural declension, I think educationally, and I think obviously in terms of morality and even in terms of spirituality and theologically. But that educational slide is very disconcerting. You know, there was a time where I think it was a given that you'd have certain skill sets, writing, the ability to read, the ability to interpret literature. Those are just sort of givens. And we find ourselves, you probably find yourselves in a seminary context, we find ourselves in a college context, where we just can't make those assumptions about our students coming to us with those basic gift sets. Students are coming to us now with rather less objective academic preparation in certain respects than they did before, but maybe in some ways a richer subjective experience. I think that's true. And there's a sense in which they really care about the implications of ideas as opposed to just making sure they get the ideas right and the consequences of ideas. And of course, as Christians, we care about both. We care about having the right ideas because we know that those right ideas matter. And we also care about living in light of those right ideas. So there's something there that we have to nurture and nurture both of those aspects to the educational process. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. In the early 1990s, you and I remember that Mark Knoll published a book entitled The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, in which he concluded that the scandal is that too often there is not one. Now, here we are more than 20 years later. What do you make of Mark's complaint, and what is the state of Christian education? In a sense, that book was a little prophetic. At the same time, I think that book was a wake-up call. I think you see some elements within the evangelical world where there is a flourishing and a flourishing of engagement of ideas. I think uh, you see this even in the so-called Young Restless Reformed Revolution was a way of caring about theology and not just caring about a church experience, if you will. 
But when Noel put that book out, it very much hit home to me. It struck me as that sort of pietistic localization, if you will, or segmenting of learning from the rest of life. And some of the culprits in Noel's book were the fundamentalists. They were the dispensationalists. They tended to not have necessarily rigorous arguments against science. So they tended to have rather almost mocking arguments against science. And that was how you defeated it. And that really didn't help people think well about their faith. And when I read that, that resonated with very much my context and the sort of educational world I was a part of. But it also reminded me that there is something to the life of the mind and being intellectually curious that is so crucial to education and just to our own nourishment. And as educators, what I like to do with my students, I certainly don't want to turn them off to things. I'd much rather give them enough so that they follow up something on their own rather than turn them off to something. If I could put before them some wonderful theological text that resonates with them and they find it enriching and they trail off in that direction with it, that to me is a huge accomplishment. And I think it becomes the educator's task to nurture that intellectual curiosity and to know how to capture it, know how to send it in the right direction. As you were suggesting, one of the things with which I think particularly American evangelicals struggle is the notion that education and the life of the mind and the intellect is spiritual. It's almost as if the spiritual is one thing and the intellect is something else, and they're really not united. Well, there's a sense in which they're almost combatants, that to talk about the intellectual could almost be to diminish the sort of simplicity of faith. And it pits two things against each other that really never should be pitted against each other. You know, as the people we both like from church history, the Warfields and the Calvins and even dipping back into Aquinas or an Augustine, they would never make that kind of a deal <laughs> between some sort of intellectual argument and being prompted towards not only their faith, but their worship of God. And there is something to that compartmentalization that's just not healthy. And it's just wonderful to be able to see these folks from church history who were really intellects on fire for God that show us there can be a richness to this in our lives today. And ultimately, that division ended up not working out very well at all, because the people who made that division, particularly in the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries, the pietists, gave us the liberals, who ended up denying the reliability of Scripture and ultimately the supernatural elements of the Christian faith, without which, as Paul says, you don't have a Christian faith. That's not Christianity. What Noel's talking about in his book, you know, that's the root of it in Noel's book. And the reality is, this just is not something that is attractive, that kind of a faith. And I think it betrays the biblical authors themselves, and it definitely betrays, in my reading at least, of the uh, Christian tradition. Christian education is facing, as you were suggesting earlier, some pretty serious cultural barriers, challenges, and possibly even threats. At lunch, we were talking about the fact that two or three institutions have dropped out of the Christian College Coalition, Yes, which uh, for various reasons, I think, and these all came after the Obergefell decision from the Supreme Court. How do Christians face these cultural challenges and the pressures that come from a culture that is increasingly unaware of what we think and hostile to some of the things that we hold as basic convictions? Well, I think your last word is the key. And here's where we are hitting on what I think we're trying to do at our place at Reformation Bible College. I think it's certainly what Westminster, California stands for. One of my colleagues down at Ligonier, Chris Larson, 
a couple months ago, made this statement, and I've been repeating it far and wide, the future belongs to Christians of conviction. And what we are finding is that, first of all, these new waters we're moving into culturally, one upside of all this is going to sort of shake out that casual Christianity, that cultural Christianity. It's debatable, but I think in many ways it did dominate much of the so-called American Christianity that was out there. So when it was actually to your favor— to be in a good church or to be a church-going person culturally, we probably saw a lot of people in church. It's increasingly not in your best interests to be associated with this ancient religion that has in it tenets from the dark ages and is not keeping with social sciences and social science data and is not kind and tolerant. We're seeing the shaking out of that casual Christianity where it's very clear what Christianity is and what a non-Christian is. So what that means to me is it really is coming down to conviction. And so what excites me about my task and the college and my colleagues there and why I want to put so much energy into this is this is our opportunity to help the leaders who will be the leaders of the next generation recognize, first of all, what are Christian convictions, help other Christians recognize what are Christian convictions, and then actually take a stand on those Christian convictions culturally. So the worst possible thing we can do is accommodate to culture and cave to culture. And it's just been disheartening to see evangelical after evangelical sort of like dominoes falling and recapitulating and making the case, well, we need to rethink what we think about same-sex issues or even gender issues. This is not a time to cave. This is not a time to capitulate. This is a time to stand on conviction. And there's going to be a respect for that, I believe, and it's necessary for us to do that. But the financial pressure to cave is immense, and you are a college president. And again, we're talking to Dr. Stephen J. Nichols, president of Reformation Bible College in Sanford, Florida, and he's on campus this week to talk with us and our students. As a Christian college president, you have bills to pay. You have an institution that you're trying to maintain, and you need certain basic facilities in order to fulfill your educational mission. And other Christian college presidents are facing that, and they're used to doing things in a certain way and operating under a certain rubric, and the ground underneath them is shaking and potentially about to be removed from them. Who knows how things are going to shake out? But at the moment, the rumblings that we're hearing in the educational world are not entirely encouraging. Who knows what the Department of Education will say and what the accreditors will then say as a consequence. So in light of all that, how do you meet your obligations to have an institution to which Christian parents can send their children and yet, as you say, stand by your convictions? The proof is in the pudding. And when you're talking about a college, that really means your graduates. So one of the things that I'm thinking about a lot these days is we live in a very fast-paced, interesting world. I hear these statistics. Very few people will actually get a job, first of all, in the degree field in which they've trained. And we may be having students in colleges who will end up in careers that we don't even know about <laughs> yet that exist. And how many people not only change jobs, but they change whole careers through the course of their career. So I hear all these statistics. And one of the things that tells me is one of the most important things about your getting a job and being a successful person has to do with who you are, maybe even more so than your training. And so one of the things I want to stress is, this was put to me very simply, show up on time, treat those around you with kindness, look out for their interests and help them, and be a creative problem solver. Those are skills that are just simply very basic skills, 
but they're sort of lost skills. If you have them, they will set you apart. I think they will set you apart. I mean, to a certain extent, you say, well, isn't that a base level? No, those have become the skills of leadership. (laughs) And uh, that's really a key here, that I think if we can produce students who, first of all, are articulate, they know how to speak, and they know how to write, and they know how to put two sentences together that can be persuasive, that's a lost art, to be articulate with pen and paper. And so you're doing that at RBC. You're teaching the great books. You're teaching grammar, logic, and rhetoric. You're you're teaching young people using the classical Christian model. And that sets you apart from a lot of schools. I think it does. And what that all leads to is this wonderful sort of lost word of education, formation, that we're really after the person and shaping them theologically, biblically, but also to simply be articulate, problem-solving, solution-seeking leaders. That is going to set them apart. And those are gifts that I think we're just seeing are going to become more and more rare commodities. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals, since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced, historically, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Until now. R.C. Sproul. For Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically reject it. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. You're helping young people to form character. You're doing what Stephen Schwen wrote about years ago in his book, Exile from Eden, which for me was a formative book because he wrote about being at a famous, prestigious university, being a part of the faculty, and then realizing this is not really what I want to do. This is not what I want to be. I want to help form young people. I reject the dominant sort of 19th century model of education that he had inherited. And he went off to a smaller, much less prestigious Christian college in order to fulfill that vocation. You know, I didn't start RBC. I came in its uh, fourth year and I didn't establish the curriculum. I inherited a curriculum. I inherited a name. I inherited the college. It was a college started by RC. And RC Sproul said this many, many times. He loves undergraduates. From what I understand of the social science research, it's early years of your life, you know, the two to six kind of years, and 18 to 22, where you are most formed, not only in your intellectual formation, but who you are, your character, your virtues. And so R.C. would say this very often, I want their minds. I want their minds. And he wanted to shape a curriculum that would shape, form their minds, and then form them. And I'm very grateful for the curriculum and the college that I have inherited. Again, I do think that who the student is 
is going to be very crucial for them and for their contribution, not only to the life of the church, but also to the communities in which they live. One of the questions that parents who are contemplating sending their children to school face is, how are we going to pay for this? And this is something that you think about all the time. And so at RBC, you've taken some concrete steps to make it possible for Christian parents to send their kids to get a high-quality Christian education from a classical perspective. We're very fortunate to have folks who care deeply about what we do and are willing to support us and help us. So the first thing that we want to do is recognize that we want to keep tuition as low as possible. So our tuition is $9,450 for this academic year, which is very low. But we don't have a lot of extras. We basically have classrooms and faculty. So we love student life. They do that on their own. We have some sports activities we get involved in, but they set up their own groups. They meet regularly. They do it, and they're showing initiative, and they take the leadership. They formed a council. So you begin to look at higher education, and this is a statistic that I can't totally wrap my arms around. I'd love to be able to. You begin to look at higher education. Very little of the dollar actually goes to the classroom. It goes to sports programs or it goes to the facilities. The facilities on a modern college campus are overwhelming. It's almost like staying at some posh resort. It's very different from when I was in <laughs> university. Or you, go, you walk into the cafeteria of a modern university. It's beyond the food court of them all. The boot service is first class in some of these it's places. It's unbelievable. The door dormitories look like, you know, four-star hotels. It's a, it's a posh resort. All that stuff comes with a price tag. So what we've done is we've said, let's focus on the classroom. 85 to 90 cents of the dollar goes to the classroom. So we've thought very strategically about who we are and what we do. And we care deeply about our students and student life, but we also want to see them take some initiatives and do some of that. But we recognize that even at $9,000, that's beyond the reach of some families. So we're very generous with scholarships. Typically, our students are, on average, will receive a third of either financial aid or scholarships. And we never want the cost of an education to stand in the way of a student who will benefit from that education. So we work very hard to that end. Why is it so important that a young person, a Christian young person, learn to look at the world as a Christian through, as Calvin says, the lenses of Scripture? Why is that so important? So, thanks to Calvin, we have our wonderful motto, above all, know God. And, of course, how we know God, we know God through the light of nature, we know God through the light of reason, but as Calvin makes it very clear— It is Scripture through which we have the true knowledge of God and the right knowledge of God, and then that allows us and enables us. It's the spectacles, as that famous line has it, the spectacles by which we read nature aright. So we are interested in training students in the Bible, that fundamentally they have a knowledge of the Bible. And from that knowledge, they engage the worlds of literature and art and even music and philosophy and theology And we're a Reformed institution, so all our faculty have to sign off on one of the Reformed confessions. And we are very much interested in the Orthodox Reformed tradition. But all of that for us comes from a knowledge of God's Word. First of all, it's the only thing God promises to bless is His Word. And we read through it. There's just something that's so refreshing about God's Word. I look at the landscape of the evangelical world today. Those leaders that people respect are people who simply preach the Word. This is, I think, what's marked R.C.'s ministry. We just had John MacArthur out to our place. This is what MacArthur's known for. I think it's what Al Mohler's known for. So I think as you look at some of this landscape of those who are leaders, you know that they take God's Word seriously, and they simply stand on God's Word. And that's what we want our students to do. We want them to know that this is the sure foundation. And you're doing that— 
And you're asking them to engage the great Western tradition as well, right? They're reading the the great books. Yes. So we get at humanities. And this is another thing we could talk about, the sort of disappearance of the humanities in higher education. We have eight semesters of great works. So our way of getting at the humanities is by simply reading the classics. And in these semesters, we just don't do books. We also do books, literature, and art and music. We think this is important. So what you're doing used to be considered, in the old sense of the word, a liberal arts education. But the listener needs to understand that sort of education almost doesn't exist anymore. In many places, it's considered politically incorrect to read the great books of the Western tradition. And the focus is almost entirely on the crimes allegedly committed by the West or on the reader's reception of a given text and how perhaps in some cases oppressive a given text seems to be to the reader. But students rarely now in the West and in the United States particularly have an opportunity to actually read in a structured setting the great works of Western civilization. You know, it's interesting you're talking about this. When I was going through my graduate work and while I was at Westminster, I also did some philosophy work. And my wife was doing her graduate work in literature. And of course, in the 90s, postmodernism was the big buzz. But what fascinated me is philosophy pretty much gave up on postmodernism. For one thing, it was the end of philosophy. Like if they followed postmodernism through, there would be no need to have a philosophy department. But where did it take hold? It took hold in the literature departments. And Here's my wife. She went to a very traditional place, Villanova University, which had a sort of religious underpinning and it was a very serious place. But what she began to notice was the younger faculty were thinking very differently. And then she moved into her doctoral work in literature. It was all the more telling. And so she had a number of faculty in their introductions as they would introduce the class and talk about themselves. They'd say, I was hired as professor of literature, but really I'm a culture studies professor. They didn't even want to adopt the title literature. They just wanted to be a professor of culture studies. And a lot of it does stem from this debate over the canon and the sort of dead white males oppressive approach of former generations. But it took hold at the very place within the university curriculum that was entrusted with handing on the literary canon to the next generation. That's where these postmodern ideas almost were much more rampant than in the philosophy departments. Because it's radical subjectivism, ultimately, and at the end of the day, as you say, philosophically, radical subjectivism leads to basically nihilism. And then there's nothing to talk about. I mean, you just sit around and drink coffee and lament the state of the world and wait to die. And it's hard to generate journal articles. (laughs) (laughs) Sartre made a career out of it, but it's been done. So... This is why it's so important that students learn to do history as well, Hmm. and and why, one of the reasons why you're a church historian, Hmm. because presumably you want to connect Christians not only with the broader Western past, of which church history is a part, but specifically with the family history of the church. You said it right there. One of my favorite 20th century poets is Langston Hughes, and he has a beautiful poem called The Negro Speaks of Rivers. And Hughes was, you know, Southern and made the great migration north. And on one of his trips back into the South, he was on a train that, you know, goes from Chicago down to New Orleans. And as he's on that train traveling along the Mississippi River, as a young man, he's 19 maybe years old when he writes Negro Speaks of Rivers, beautiful poem. And he talks about how these connections to the rivers of the pastor really his identity. And he says, my soul has grown deep like the rivers. And it struck me that those were meaningful connections to the past that actually enhanced his own understanding. And it struck me how important that is as Christians. 
And I think the reverse is true. Without meaningful connections to our past, we sort of shrivel up. We have a very narrow horizon to draw upon. But how refreshing the broad horizons of the centuries of church history are for us. You know what it's called when you don't know your identity? It's called amnesia, (laughs) right? And then they take you to a hospital, they put a gown on you, and they supervise you closely. Maybe they medicate you until you figure out who you are and how you got there. So your job as a historian then is to remedy ecclesiastical amnesia. That's who we are, which gets us back to where we started, because the century, the time, the period in which we find ourselves is very much like the first century, and I think particularly the second century. Hmm. I find teaching ancient church history, you know, about the second century in particular, that students are more interested now than they were five or eight or ten years ago because they see their own time in the second century. Yes, I think that's fascinating. You're talking about the docetism? Well, I'm thinking about docetism. I'm thinking about, for example, one of my favorite texts is the letter or the treatise to Diognetus, in which he lays out the differences between Christians and the Jews and Christians and the pagans. And whenever I read that, and particularly chapter 5, the students resonate with that because they can see themselves relative to the surrounding pagan view of the world. They recognize that they are in this place, but that they have an identity that doesn't utterly belong to this place. That's so entirely true. I think there is much more continuity between those early centuries of the church and where we find ourselves than probably in any other moment in American Christianity. If we get outside of our North American contexts, our brothers and sisters around the world have been facing sort of first century conditions for a long time. But in our context, we've had such a disjuncture between what you read in the pages of the New Testament and what we've experienced culturally until now. And what I'm finding is that clarity And I think, again, that clarity leads to a conviction. I find this really interesting that whether it's Paul or Peter, and they're engaging their audience on how to live, the first thing they constantly keep wanting to tell them is, don't fear. You know, we miss this in the argument for apologetics, the locus classicus of 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. Just prior to that, Peter is quoting this Old Testament text about not fearing and not fearing what is culturally around them and the world in which they live. This is our tendency. You know, we're not in Kansas anymore, and so we fear. Really? We're, re- <laughs> yeah, we're really not in we Kansas We are really anymore. not in Kansas. And so it makes us anxious, and hence that's why people want to capitulate. Well, I, I liked getting along with culture. I miss that. I want to go back to where we get along. Let's cave on our Christian principles. That's a really important point that I don't want to pass over, the temptation to go back and of course, then the minute you say that, we think of the Israelites. Hmm. Was there no place to die in Egypt that you took us out here? You know, we liked leeks and onions. Okay, it was fun to go through the Red Sea, but let's go back now. And I think American Christians may actually be longing for that time when we were more acceptable, more influential, and where we were not being forced to make choices between the Lord and cultural acceptability. Well, that's it, isn't it? This is the singular confession of the New Testament. Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the singular confession of those early centuries. Is it Christ or Caesar? You know this, the end of Polycarp always amazes me, where it ticks off the proconsuls that Polycarp was under. And some of that is the connections to Christ, you know. So I think a Herod shows up in that list and the Caesar. And then it says, but Jesus Christ is on the throne and reigning as king. And it's a way of alerting this audience to what is the appearance of power and what is the reality of power. And I wonder sometimes if we're not fooling ourselves 
with our look back at the previous generations of American Christians if really what they had was much more an illusion of power than actual cultural power or an illusion of cultural acceptance without the significant cultural acceptance they thought they had. When the Roman citizens were taking Polycarp to the stake, it was perfectly clear what was going on, at least in his mind, and all they wanted was conformity. They weren't asking him to believe the Roman pantheon. They weren't asking him to believe that Caesar is God. All they wanted him to do was to say that Caesar is Lord, and he refused to do it. And he knew perfectly well the cost And so if the listener has not read The Martyrdom of Polycarp, that's a text that's easily found online. It's free and edifying, well worth reading. There's some strange bits in there. His vision and all. Yeah, things flying (laughs) out and and some of that. So you want to read that with some criticism. It's It's not not scripture. scripture, But it's an ancient, largely edifying biography of the martyrdom of one of our great early fathers who faced a hostile culture, and he faced it for the sake of Christ and the gospel and for the sake of other Christians and did so, as you say, with courage, right, and not afraid. Yeah. Well, we go back to Philippians 1. I find this so impressive. Here's Paul really under the guard, which is the face of Roman power and opposition, the imperial guard, the praetorian guard. And what he reports to the Philippians as he's in Rome under the Praetorian Guard writing to the Philippians, what he reports to them is that Christ is being made known among the Praetorian Guard. Then he tells the Philippians that this is giving confidence to the brothers and sisters in Rome. So here's Paul under the very image of Roman power. The gospel is powerful enough to penetrate that. That encourages the Roman Christians to be confident in the gospel, and Paul wants this to encourage the Philippian Christians to be confident in the gospel. I think, you know, for those generations, I'm sure we could talk about this would be a wonderful time. We put our confidence in the wrong things. We look back at Christians in the 70s, 80s, I think there were a lot of missteps, and they put their confidence in the president. If we only got our guy in the White House, etc. We just as a church, we put our confidence in the wrong things, and we're reading the pages of Scripture, and we see, you know, our confidence needs to be in God, in the gospel, and in Christ. And that's what we have to stand for as a church, and we're almost sort of being pressed there by our age. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.